Well, good morning. And today we're looking at the second half of Mark chapter 13. So it will be really a great help to you and to me if you could have that chapter open in front of you as we look at it together. Before we start, let's commit our time to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we now open your word together, we ask that you would speak to us and hide these words away in our hearts so that we might live in the light of your truth. Assist us by your spirit, we pray, to hear your voice this morning and breathe life into these dry bones so that we might live for you. Amen. Well, it's truly amazing, isn't it, just how many people have made predictions about the date that the world will end. Perhaps the most uh, well-known are the claims made by the Jehovah's Witnesses. The first president of the Watchtower Society, William Taze Russell, predicted the second coming of the Lord Jesus in 1874. Although after this date had passed, he simply claimed that it was an invisible return and that the final judgment day would be actually in 1914. Since that time, the Watchtower Society has published numerous apocalyptic dates with a date for Armageddon as recently as 1975. I mean, I've heard my birthday called many things, but Armageddon, Armageddon's not one of them. The one that's always amused me was the prediction made by William Miller. He was a Baptist minister in North America and he produced an elaborate calculation, which you can see here on the screen, showing that the Lord would return by all of his calculations and his readings of the scripture sometime between March 21st, 1843 and March 21st, 1844, in that one year window. And tens of thousands of people followed him and became known as the Millerites. But when March 21st, 1844, the last possible date, had passed without incident, it resulted in what has become known as the wonderfully named Great Disappointment. Well, I'll bet it was. But perhaps the most notorious end time predictor of recent years is Harold Camping. Maybe you've heard of him. He was a Christian broadcaster with Family Radio in California. Camping first predicted the return of Christ on September the 6th, 1994, which he then revisited uh, and revised because it had passed, to now saying it was the 29th of September. And then it moved to October the 2nd, but still nothing. And he kind of disappeared from view for a while. In 2005, he had another go, though. This time, the radio station went big with the prediction. And it was a prediction for May 21st, 2011. Well, this was revised to October the 21st, when nothing happened. Camping had a stroke shortly after this and disappeared from, from public life. But according to one article, quite interestingly, they say he admitted in a private interview that he no longer believed that anyone could know the time of 
the rapture or the end of the world. In stark contrast to his previously staunch position on the subject, in March 2012, he stated that his attempt to predict a date was sinful and that his critics had been right in emphasising the words of Matthew 24.36, of that day and hour knoweth no man. He added that he was now searching the Bible even more fervently, not to find dates, but to be more faithful in his understanding. That takes a humble man, actually, doesn't it? He went up in my opinion when I read that. It is indeed, though, a strange thing for any Christian who knows their Bible to do this, isn't it? Camping's critics were right, just as he finally conceded. We've got those words right here in our text this morning. Did you see them? It's in verse 32. Jesus says, no one knows about that day or hour. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Well, Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives. He's looking across at the imposing and magnificent buildings of the temple. It was a structure that some estimate took up one quarter of the area of the city at the time. That's quite something, isn't it? It was the jewel of the nation of Israel, the meeting place between heaven and earth. And he's been talking to his disciples about its complete and utter destruction. But the disciples were concerned about more than just the destruction of a building. The real thing they wanted to know about was when this present age was going to end and when Jesus was going to establish his rule over the earth. Matthew makes that clear in his account, actually, when he records at this particular moment, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? Jesus has just talked about the destruction of the temple. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So there's, there's two events here, although perhaps the disciples didn't realise it. Perhaps they blurred them into two. But there are two events. And Jesus begins by dealing with the first, the destruction of the temple. But as we observed last week, when we get to verse 32 in our text... It's here that Jesus switches to the second event. And it's here that he speaks plainly about his final return at the end of the age. Jesus finishes teaching the disciples by giving us two pictures which end chapter 13. The first is that of a fig tree. And the second is a story about an absent master leaving his servants in charge of his house whilst he goes off on a, on a journey somewhere. Well, we're going to look at these two pictures this morning as we finish off the chapter together. So, first of all, let's take a look at the first one there in verse 28. Jesus says, Now, learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away 
until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Here, Jesus is finishing up his teaching about the end of the temple and the horrors that will ensue in AD 70 when Jerusalem was massacred by the Roman general Titus. And he has dropped an absolute bomb here, hasn't he? Everything that the nation held precious was going to be wiped out. For nearly 2,000 years now, Jewish people have struggled to hold on to the remnants of their identity. They have been massacred numerous times. They have been ejected from their homes and booted out of countries in which they've settled. And even today, on the site upon which once stood that magnificent temple complex, now, since the early 8th century, stands the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the third holiest site in Islam. Even today, the Jews are not allowed to pray anywhere on the Temple Mount. That's quite an amazing uh, prediction come true, isn't it, from Jesus? In preparing his disciples for those fateful days that are about to come upon them, Jesus says they should learn a lesson by looking at a fig tree. Now, arguably, Jesus could have picked any of a number of species of, of tree for this lesson. The species is not particularly important. A fig tree would probably have been available and familiar and obvious for them. When the fig tree starts to produce those tender new twigs that grow up and leaves start to sprout on those new branches, as everyone knows, summer must be approaching. I mean, I could give a similar illustration along these lines for those of us who live in a modern, urban, 21st century setting. When you enter the supermarket and the aisles have started to fill up with chocolate eggs, you know that Easter is approaching. Actually, that might just signal that Christmas has finished and they're already gearing up for the next confectionery holiday. But you get the point. There's an obvious sign and the seasons change. The temperature and the weather might fluctuate on a daily basis, but those tender new leaves, the blossoms on the cherry tree, well, they give the game away. They're a sure sign that summer is about to hit. And so, too, the sign Jesus has given back there in verse 14 when those armies are surrounding Jerusalem and the pagan banners are waving in the air, don't hang around asking yourself, well, I wonder if this is it. Don't stop to consider whether this is, well, this is just another crisis perhaps soon to pass over. Instead, says Jesus, run, because disaster is at your very door, sitting on the doorstep. So leave your belongings, travel light, don't stop running until Jerusalem is a very distant reality. And in verses 30 to 31, Jesus reinforces the fact that this is a reality which the very generation he's talking to will live through. But they are not to be despondent, Jesus says. Have a look at verse 31. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words 
will never pass away. Now that is a truth to live by. Did you hear it? Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. You might live to see the passing away of everything, everything sacred to you in this world. But the words of Jesus Christ will continue to stand forever. It's possible that the reference to heaven and earth here passing away is a reference to the temple, which was understood to be that meeting place between God and mankind, between heaven and earth. But whatever it meant, whatever's meant there, the point is a powerful one. And it is oh so relevant to us today, isn't it? It is very easy to be full of anxiety over the things that we lose in this life. A job, a home, a loved one. In fact, it's hard to believe that after the days of coronavirus, that there's not going to be days following it of massive financial and economic loss. We're going to lose big time, aren't we? But we are to remember that even if everything else passes away, God's word stands. Do you remember those words of Jesus? When he finished his most famous sermon ever on, a, on another mountain up in Galilee, he also ended with a story saying, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Well, the rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundations on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Here's two men, says Jesus, each building their dream homes. One builds on a foundation of rock, the other on sand. And when the storm comes, the inevitable happens. The houses might have looked the same before that fateful day came. But the rock foundation is the one that stands firm. Whilst the sand castle is just washed away, it collapses. The foundation here is a foundation for life. And it is the word of Jesus Christ. His words will never pass away. If you trust him and build your life on the truth that Jesus spoke, then whatever storms hit, whatever loss you endure, your life will stand firm. His word will, will be an anchor so that even though the waves might break over you and against you, you will not sink if you are trusting, if you are building your life on the words of Jesus Christ. And I must then urge you again this morning, if you've placed your hope in anything other than Jesus Christ, that is a mistake. Jesus says it's foolish. Only Jesus can keep you through the storms of life and bring you safely onto the other side, on heaven's shores. Come to him before it's too late, because, because one day Jesus will return. He's coming back. And that brings us to our second picture, which we see in verses 32 to 37. Take a look with me. No one knows about that day or hour, 
not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts servants in charge, each with his assigned task. And he tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will return. Whether it's in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. Watch what I say. I say what I say to you. I say to everyone, watch. The day and hour of Jesus's return is only known by God the Father. This is not something that even Jesus himself can tell his disciples because he doesn't possess the knowledge of that date. And we shouldn't let that statement from Jesus worry us, by the way. In his human incarnation, Jesus had many limitations, didn't he? We see them in the Gospels. He got hungry, he got thirsty, he got tired. None of these things were true of his divine nature. Here we see the mystery of the joining of the human and divine nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is simply saying that as a human being, fully man, as one of us, he has no knowledge of the timing of his return. And if that is true, then we need to have no knowledge of it either, just like him. Nothing, no event on the global stage will herald his arrival and give a sign that that coming is at the door, like the previous event. And this profoundly affects the way that we live. It has profoundly affected the way that Christians have always lived. What Jesus says next is topped and tailed with him exhorting his disciples and everyone who will follow after them to be on guard, be alert and keep watch. He even says it again in the middle in verse 35, just for good measure. A few years back when we were still living in Kingston, I got into my car one morning and I started the engine to go to work. I expected to hear that smooth rattle of a Ford diesel engine, but instead I was greeted with a catastrophic roaring. I poked my head under the car and I discovered that someone had come in the night and cut out the catalytic converter from the middle of my exhaust system. It was just gone. The police later told me they discovered a car with a boot full of these lovely devices. Little comfort to me. It reminded me of the days when we used to live in a certain city in the northwest of the country and I lost track of the number of objects stolen from our property, including a lawnmower, two motorcycles and a cement mixer. Had I known that the catal catalytic converter or any of these other items, that that thief was going to be paying a visit, I would have camped out on my doorstep, wouldn't you? But the thing is, with visits from such people, you never know when they are coming. Jesus says that his return will be just as surprising and unexpected. He elaborates this point in Matthew's account of this particular talk by saying this, 
as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. You remember Noah, the story of Noah in the Old Testament? Well, in Noah's day, whilst he slogged away building that enormous vessel, the world around him just mocked and went about its business as normal. People gave it not a second thought. They just thought, mental bloke over there building a boat in the middle of nowhere. And they just carried on with their plans, putting dates in the diary when they were getting married, you know, when they were having a business meeting. On the day that the flood came, those people all just got up and had breakfast as normal, I suppose. And when the catastrophe hit, every one of them were swept away in the flood, which they hadn't expected to happen. Everyone except Noah and his family. You can be sure that each day Noah got up and looked at the sky and he wondered, will today be the day? And you and I likewise need to be ready just the same. Here in this little illustration Jesus gives are the warnings at, that, that he gives to his disciples in specific. Jesus pictures a house full of servants and one day their master announces that he must leave and go on a journey. He cannot tell them how long he will be, but they are to expect his return at any time. Well, clearly, it's a picture of how we as his church should be living today. Take a look at it. Let me point out a few things. First thing, according to verse 34, he has put his servants in charge of his house. It is therefore our job to look after the house, to make sure that his house is running well. Again, as Matthew recounts the story, Jesus tells of a servant who starts to beat his fellow servants. Uh, and then he goes off and joins in with drunken revelries going on in the world around him. The servant has proved himself to actually be an imposter. He's not a servant of the household. He's a, actually, if he's a servant of anything, he's a servant of himself, isn't he? He has no right to be in the house. And Jesus says that when the master returns, he will cut him to pieces. Judgment's going to fall on this man. The household of the church is to be an organised and a loving community who care for each other, who keep themselves morally and spiritually separate, distinctive and different from the world around them. Even when it seems like the master has been a long time in returning. The second thing that we see also in verse 34 again is that we have each been given our assigned tasks, things to do. We all have our role to play. No servant is left out in this. There are no passengers in the household. No members of the church that just mooch off the rest and let them all do the work. Jesus does not envisage members of the household of faith, his church, who are members in name only and never actually serve or minister in that church. If that's you, if you're just a passenger, be very careful because the master is coming back one day and he will have something to say to you about that. 
we have all been given the task of pulling together in making disciples of every nation. And you and I need to find the ways in which we can be busy in that work, the way he's called us to it. A third thing you can see, again, in this passage is that we are to be careful not to be caught napping. Don't let the, faster, the, the master find you sleeping. This life is not for sleeping. It's for waiting eagerly in anticipation, longing for the return of your loving master. You don't know when the master will return and you don't want him to find you unprepared. You don't want to be caught completely off guard when he does. In his second letter, the Apostle Peter asks the question, in the light of Jesus' return, how then ought we to live? And he then goes on to answer his own question, saying, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, Make every effort to be found spotless, blameless and at peace with him. That's how we're to live. The way we live each day should be profoundly affected, do you see, by the reality of Jesus' return. It's so important. But not because we live in a cowering fear of a sudden visit from a stern master. That is only the case for wicked servants, for imposters, for hypocrites. They should live in fear. But no, for God's true servants, we should be longing for that day, just like a bride longs for the arrival of her bridegroom. That's the picture we're given in scripture. So brothers and sisters, like generations of believers who have gone before us, we do not know when our good master will come back. But like those before us, we need to live each day in anticipation of his return. How are you doing at that? Because I think we all need to get better at it, don't we? To remember the reality of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't think anything affects the way we live quite as much as that, does it? If you are expecting Jesus to come back any minute... You will not be investing your life in what this world offers. No, instead, you'll be resolved to store up your treasure in heaven, won't you? Where moth and rust cannot destroy and thieves will not break in and steal, says Jesus. You will be seeking to live that holy life that is pleasing to him, because that's how you want him to find you when you return. And because of that, you will be quick to confess and turn from your sin, won't you? You'll keep very short accounts with God. And you'll be reading and scrutinising the words that he's left for you. Because you miss him and you want to see him. You'll be warning our sin-sick world to be ready for his arrival too. And you'll be longing more and more each day, I hope you are, to see your saviour's face on that final day. As the hymn writer Stuart Hine so eloquently put it, When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and lead me home, what joy shall fill my heart. Then I shall bow with humble adoration and then proclaim, my God, how great thou art. Let's pray.
Father, help us to anticipate your return each day. We pray, Lord, that you would come soon. We pray that you would help us in the meantime to live lives worthy of you, in holiness and eager service. We want to be greeted as good and faithful servants on the day of your return, when every eye shall see you and every knee bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Help us, we pray. Amen.